0: i'm I'm off my game this week. I don't know what's going on. There's still like a glowing thing behind my head wow. too. I think there's sun outside. All right. Let's start the show this time in five, yeah. four, three, two. <laughs> Hello, and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Watch Devin drink some water while I drink some water, too, and we get ready for the show. This is episode 46, man. We've been going for quite some time now, plus a bunch We're of... We're becoming old. Yeah, I know. Jeez, this, this show is getting long in the tooth. It might be time to retire. Uh, Devin, man, what have you been up to?
1: Uh, I uh, I recently just been doing some ENG stuff. Um uh, for, uh, one of the companies I work with that I don't know if I'm allowed to speak about them or not, but, uh, we did, um, it wasn't live, but it was live to tape for, um, a shoot. And of course it's all last minute. They're like, Hey, can you drive over to, you know, Milwaukee today and shoot this like 15 minute interview? Uh, and then, so we can air it tonight. So that was fun, uh, for a UFC fighter out in Milwaukee, but that's, that's been about it. And then it's just been a little bit of editing here and there. What's been up with you?
0: basically still on the editing trail. I've uh, been, uh, nonstop editing. I'm working. I've got an intern working for me now, so that's kind of really? nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this, uh, film studies student, uh, needed time for something. I I, I have the paperwork. I should probably read it, but, uh, yeah. So he's been <laughs> hanging around the studio, just, uh, basically being my audio slave. Um, I need, the. there's a lot of Foley work going on in this particular shoot, so I have to go find and sample tons of different things in order to get the entire thing put together. There's like 85 audio samples in the timeline for just door slams, key jingles, blood hits, and so on. So I've basically been assigning him a field recorder and having him run around recording samples for me of things that I asked him to record, so... It's kind of nice that I don't have to do that. Kind of weird having Lucas, his name is Lucas, by the way, uh, running around for me. So thanks, Lucas, for all your hard work, man. And he's going to be on again tonight for some more editing with me. So great. Also, got back from a major hike, and I am not in shape, so I need to get in shape. Uh, (laughs) But enough about that. On to the the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. Uh, First up, we've got a kind of thin news week, guys, so not a lot of exciting stuff to report. But I do have one interesting thing. looks like we'll be getting new processors from Qualcomm for cell phones. This is the Snapdragon 820, and this processor basically allows you to have a 14-bit signal path between your sensor and the recording area on your memory, whatever. Uh, Basically... What they're doing here is they're giving you a higher bandwidth so you can capture more color. Uh, This also has better processing, so going from RAW to JPEG, you get a little bit more out of it. Uh, There's more on this if you really want to dig into the technical specs. But basically, the really cool feature here is 30 frames per second with zero shutter lag for up to 25 megapixel images. Devin, what do you think about this? This is basically the sign that the next generation of phones are all (laughs) going to be shooting 4K, right?
1: Uh, yeah, I think that's definitely where things are going. Uh, I think it's going to move out of being just flagship phones and it's going to start to trickle down into the other phones. Uh, I think really though, the important aspect is it's kind of like signing death warrant for point and shoots, uh, you know, phones getting to the ability where they're starting to talk about flagships handling raw besides like one or two exclusive phones. So the more that they're handling raw and more data and everything else and producing better images, at the end of the day, the whole point of a point-and-shoot was just to be a small, compact camera that you used to go and document the family. And phones are quickly taking over that territory. And so I just I I could see that market shrinking uh, because I'm still surprised that every year I hear about all these little point-and-shoots coming out that don't offer much difference. But like um, you know, they're usually advertising video features, which is interesting. Uh, trying to make it take over your video camera slot. But for me, I'm like that that market. I don't understand how there's so many models and so many different trims of basically the same product across all manufacturers.
0: Now, what about Panasonic, uh, Canon PowerShot, all that? What about the distinguish uh, distinguishing feature, which is the lens that they're adding to a lot of these point shoots? Because, you know, like the Sony, um, what is it, the RX10 and the RX100, both of those have – very substantial zoom ranges. I, I believe the uh, RX100 mm-hmm. is like a 24 to 200 equivalent, uh, F2.8 across the entire zoom range, and the other one's like a 24 to 70 equivalent, uh, F2.8 across the range. Does that mean that those are still viable in comparison to a cell phone? Because, I mean, really, with the cell phone, I, you've got like one wide angle I would, and that's it. That's
1: a very excellent point, but I'd say that uh, at the end of the day, uh, people are okay with digital zoom. Like, they realize it won't look good, and they shoot that anyways. And your enthusiast and hobbyist in photography, they would much rather spend the extra 100 or 200 to get a low-end DSLR as opposed to a point-and-shoot. So, at the end of the day, I just I don't see where this uh, market share is going to go
0: besides down. I don't know, man. I've been jonesing for one of those uh, uh, Panasonic LX100s which is like a Mm -hmm. 24 to 400 range zoom, you know, compact camera. It shoots 4K video, has audio inputs, has all the features that you'd get out of basically a GH4. I think it even has like a 1.33 inch sensor, which is basically micro four thirds. It, it looks really sexy, and it's priced low enough without lenses or anything else that it's something I could hand to my wife and say, okay, mm-hmm. you want to go shoot our next vacation? You want to do some videos of the dogs running around? You know, you go visit your sister. You can film your sister with this. You know, all those sorts of things. And no, that
1: and that's a fair camera, and I, I would agree that cameras like that aren't necessarily maybe going to go away. But, I mean, you think about how many revisions we've had of a Canon PowerShot and yeah, how every year – all they do is like add a model number. Like they don't even change the sensors or the processing. They add a model number and they add like more scenes. And that used to be the way they marketed these cameras in this area. But I'm just saying that I think the demo, the demo largely is just, they've been using cell phones anyways. I think the only people really buying point and shoots besides hobbyists uh, are basically people who aren't that comfortable with smartphones or just don't have smartphones or flagship smartphones or anything like that. Usually your older audience.
0: Now, the G series from Canon, that is sort of a tired line. Um, yes. In the old days, their distinguishing factor was actually that it shot raw photos in camera and uh, it sort of had the feel of like a rangefinder. But now, with so many point and shoot cameras allow you to shoot raw. Uh, Canon really hasn't refreshed that and it still suffers extremely from shutter lag where you push the button and it's like, you know, a half a second later before your image is actually yeah. captured. It's obnoxious. Because it's and usually because they aren't even using uh, any kind of autofocus
1: sensors, which is ironic because even uh, older point and shoot cameras that use like celluloid like film, I remember, would have some kind of sensors in there for metering uh, as well as uh, getting distance for focus and everything else. And I feel like now a lot of point and shoots when I pick them up and I go to say, all right, let's focus on something. It just does that contrast based focus, which with its puny processor takes all day. To sit there and go, da 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 okay, focused.
0: Now, that's one of the sexy things about Panasonic's point-and-shoot cameras, and I know this is off-topic from the new Qualcomm processors, but they Panasonic includes their DPD focus system in all of their point-and-shoot cameras as well as their GH4 and so on. And so if you use, like, the LX100 or the F, I think it's the FZ1000, those cameras have the same sort of super-fast, snappy focus that you get out of the GH4 or the GH3, and it's, it's very attractive, very sexy, uh, probably mm-hmm. one of the fastest point-and-shoots I've messed around with. Um, some will argue that Sony's RX series is faster or as fast. Uh, you know, it's kind of, that one's down to personal preference. But, man, those two guys have it together. Canon's point-and-shoots... Not so much. Uh, I feel like the only people who buy Canon point-and-shoot are the people who say, you know what,
1: I need a good camera, and they go into Best Buy, and they just view whatever Best Buy has that day, and they compare all the little specs and everything else, and they talk with a guy who doesn't know a whole lot because – it's not like he's probably even a photography guy. And then at the end of the day, they go, okay, I think this one's the best camera here. And they buy that. I feel like that's the <laughs> only, like, I I would like to see the numbers on how many people like shop online for a point and shoot camera. Cause I really feel like most enthusiasts and hobbyists. uh, I mean like uh, quite a few of them I could see going towards like an LX100, but also too, like for not a whole lot of money, if they are an enthusiast, most of the time they want those interchangeable lenses and, there are several competitive DSLRs in that price bracket. Now, we've talked... Because, I mean, a like Canon PowerShot like $700, $650 for a Canon PowerShot G7X. True. Which, but which I'm just like, that seems like a lot for... And if you're a hobbyist and you want to change lenses, it seems like a lot to spend on a camera that kind of takes away a lot of features so it's simpler and easier to use you know what i'm saying
0: but at the same time if you go with like a i don't know a canon t6i i think is what they're up to now right six or is it seven yeah Yeah, six so if you go the t6i or t5i or whatever um you're gonna spend like 500 bucks on the body and then even in a couple of entry level lenses. Let's say you get the uh, Canon 50 millimeter f one eight. Now you've added a hundred bucks, so now you're up to seven hundred dollars. You're gonna want like the kit zoom at least, or a decent zoom. And now you're into the thousand dollar range. Uh, whereas with this, some of these point shoots, you kind of, I mean, an f two eight across the entire range on the RX one hundred. I mean, that's pretty sexy. Uh, that's a good offering, yeah. and it's twenty four to two hundred. So I mean. That's sort of where you want to be it's got good low light performance and it's easy to use and you don't have to buy all the extra glass seven hundred to nine hundred dollars. maybe that isn't unreasonable for those cameras. you know what i mean well and i don't I don't shop for point and shoot, so maybe I don't know,
1: but do they like maintain their value pretty well uh no. compared to so I'm saying like you buy this camera. And uh, it's kind of one of those, you know, the argument with photography is like, don't look for a beginner camera because you'll end up just throwing it away and like moving up and spending tons and tons of money, getting the best equipment you can. But I I think the argument does stand that uh, somebody who wants to get into photography, buying a point and shoot, that doesn't leave them any options for upgrade this part, upgrade that part, sell this, sell that, uh, and kind of work their way up in quality of gear, as opposed to even if you get the T six I with the 18 to one thirty five kit lens, you know, the plastic uh, 3.5 to 5.6 for a thousand dollars, that's you can get more lenses later on when you have more money and everything else and do the upgrade process. So it's just, it, it's one of those where, like I said, I haven't met somebody yet who is an enthusiast or a hobbyist. And it's like, yeah, I'm looking to get a new point and shoot. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. And I'm on the opposite end. Like, I have all the good gear I need. I don't really need any more gear. But then I'm like, well, wait a minute. You know, wouldn't it be nice to have just a point and shoot for this in this setting? And you know, wouldn't it be great? Because my my wife's afraid to touch my camera gear. I mean, I've got so <laughs> much stuff now that it's like she doesn't for want. Good to reason. You know, she doesn't want to break anything. So there's a lot of dial. It. Yeah, exactly. If I have, <laughs> whoa, hey, uh, no, if I have a lot of. Uh, Um, of stuff here, and I have one that's specifically like a low price camera to hand to her and be like, "Here you go. You know, if you break this, I don't care. You know, drop it in a puddle, do whatever. I mean, five hundred dollars that's expensive, but that's far Mm -hmm. less expensive than say destroying you know a thousand dollar lens with a another twelve or fourteen hundred dollar body. And it gives her all the stuff that she wants. Plus, man, I was just playing around, and you know, you you mentioned Best Buy. I wanted to play around with one, (laughs) so I went to a Best Buy. I played around with the LX one hundred. And sure enough, like that, sure sh- that shoots burst rate that it's very comparable to what you get out of the GH4, and it's a 12 megapixel sensor, so you're not dealing with, uh, you know, huge pixels cram or I mean small pixels crammed onto a sensor. You've got larger pixel sites, so 1600 ISO isn't that unreasonable. 3200 ISO isn't that unreasonable for this like really easy point and shoot camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, the shutter speed alone was like, wow, this is nice. And then on top of that. Uh, it's got the digital shutter option as well. So you can go up to like one thirty-two thousandth of a second. So you don't even need NDs in front of it in order to shoot. And I think this includes NDs. Man, I'm selling myself on this camera and this isn't you even are, what we started. Absolutely selling yourself. to
1: get back a little bit onto the topic of the cell phone. Uh, one thing I am interested is about two years ago, Panasonic had that, uh, that, Pats Oh yeah. That. About them with the lens splitting and everything else. Still haven't seen it get pushed into any product. But as far as I know, Panasonic doesn't even have any sensor facilities, do they? So they would probably be licensing that patent out to somebody else.
0: I thought uh, Panasonic makes their own uh, range of sensors. Okay. Yeah, they, uh, okay. right. because the MN3 whatever is the one that's the 16 megapixel sensor we see in all these cameras right now. That's uh, the GH4. That's the Olympus series cameras. Uh, some of Sony's 16 megapixel sensors. Uh, oh, are, yeah. okay. Yeah, are the same one. Basically, anywhere you see M43 with a 16-megapixel sensor, it's usually Panasonic's uh, chip. Uh, Sony has all the other ones. All the 20-megapixel sensors are from Sony. Uh, some of Nikon sensors are from Sony. Canon makes their own. So those are the three major manufacturers. But
1: that, Patson, I'm still excited for, yet still hasn't come out. But I was thinking about it actually the other day. And, and what it really is, um, because you think about the Bayer pattern, which is this like the reason why our DSLRs when we shoot video has like that you know aliasing, staircasing on high contrast areas and stuff like that, because of the way that it uh, mixes all the colored pixels together, this prism thing kind of like eliminates, I would think, a lot of those kind of issues and makes me think this is kind of like back when we had our you know DVX-100Bs and they would have that prism that would split to three sensors so then each color would be put into each one. And then that way they didn't have problems with aliasing and stuff like that, because every I, I guess every square pixel of light uh, was read by three different sensors. So it could properly mix all the colors that were in that exact spot. And I was just I was just like, where is this? And I was looking it up and still nothing, no announcements of what they're going to do with it or anything else other than the fact that, you know, they've got this pattern. And I think now it's licensed. That's a great image that shows off what it does. Uh, I mean, I'm not I'm Not going to bore everyone with a tech talk about it, but I, instead of filtering the light, which you lose a lot of light in, in, you know, if you hold up a piece of like a gel, if you put a gel on, on one of your lights, it loses a little bit of intensity. And it's the same thing with your sensor. There's kind of gels over the pixels. And instead, by using prisms, it'll actually split the light, which allows a lot more light transmission onto the sensor body. And so in their figures, they're showing samples where like, oh, this could definitely increase by, you know, How much is it? Like maybe a stop and a half or something like that of light? Yeah, that's what it looks like.
0: You got me reading through the patent now. Oh, you know, (laughs) since this is such a a boondoggle into the weeds here, I'm going to go ahead and put the link to this uh, patent in the show notes. Uh, It is pretty interesting, and you're right, Devin. That would increase the amount of light to each of the sensor sites. Uh, The other one, didn't we see recently one that would capture um, basically three different colors? So it was a tri-photocell setup where it has like a red, a green, oh, yeah. and um, it would, the other color was something not normal. Like, you normally think red, green, and blue, but it was, like, red, but green, like and, like, contrast or something like that, or, you know, brightness. Yeah. I, I don't remember what the third one was, but uh, a very interesting sensor technology. Yeah. Well, and
1: I think all this is moving around because we're trying to do video with one sensor, uh, colored video, and that's always been a struggle. And and that's why a lot of your, uh, you know... The reason why cameras were so big and everything else was because you're dealing with multiple sensors and prisms that would split up the light and everything else to try to get as accurate of a color saying, hey, in this exact spot, this color came into the lens. Right now with DSLRs like the GH4 and everything else, and this is where 4K helps a lot because you add all that detail, but it's still well, this spot had this much green and this spot had this much red and they're right next to each other. So we could kind of mix it and just call it, you know, uh, whatever color it is, but it's still not totally accurate. Uh, So that's where I'm excited to see them because if they put this in a cell phone, uh, which is where I probably see them first implementing this technology, uh, you're going to end up with a lot brighter images for such a small sensor, which then allows you to not have to use that ISO as hard. So it's something that definitely the mirrorless market in general could use a lot of help with—is getting, you know, a brighter sensor that receives more light. So, I would love, you know, it's probably not going to be something on a GH five because, you know, the the Patson is still, I guess, relatively new in terms of, you know, engineering and innovation. It's only two years old, uh, but I am excited to see where they go with it. They haven't made any announcements as far as I know.
0: Now we're talking about four K images here. I got a question for you, and I'm going to kind of throw this out: okay. Have you seen any of the Sony A seven R Mark II? uh, video footage yet in 4k. Cause I've been kind uh, of, I've seen like two sample clips. Yeah. Yeah. I've been kind of keeping an eye out for it. And I've started to see a few clips and it's kind of, it's not as uh, amazing as, uh, maybe I'm just because of the YouTube compression, I'm not seeing it correctly, but like, I've been watching it and they're like, Oh yeah, this is sharp. And they'll show some trees and stuff. And it's still like a, quite a bit of more a patterns in the background, You're kind of getting that like weird rolling crawl a little bit, a little bit of jello cam in motion. Uh, I don't know, man. Uh, it's did not they, nearly they, they as sharp in 4K was, as I thought it would be.
1: Did they say that that was from the final product, or was that still a prototype product? I want to say, say it was
0: review from? models, so not review final models. product. It may be another, you know, uh, firmware revision before they get to that.
1: Well, I, when I looked at it, I wasn't impressed. Um, you know, and I, I, I kind of jumped back and went, "Well, how did the like A7S look?" and and I was like, "Yeah, this just isn't looking all that impressive." And I'm not sure exactly what's wrong with it. I can't put my finger on it, but I think it's just lacking a bit of detail. I didn't see any of the kind of rolling or flickering you're talking about, but I did notice that the detail overall just didn't seem to be there. And I'm like, but sometimes this crap happens because somebody goes into like their video editing software and say export for YouTube. Yeah. (laughs) And the software goes, oh, YouTube only uses, you know, eighteen megabit or something at four K, so that's what I'll render. But then when YouTube gets it, it's still gonna recompress that eighteen megabit into another eighteen megabit. So stuff like that can happen. And actually I've been looking into it. I think YouTube when you upload four K actually gives you a higher bitrate ten eighty P, but I'm still trying to confirm that uh with my test. But that's something I'll probably talk about later once I get to an answer yeah, on Yeah,
0: kind of something lazy and on the side note. I usually I used to use the auto export for YouTube simply because it's, it's there and it's easy to use. Pass. But uh, anymore, I created my own because honestly, I couldn't tell after uploading a few things the difference between... Uh, 4 megs uh, limit for your, your bandwidth versus the 16 meg that it, it automatically sets it to for YouTube videos. So right. I've just been putting it at 4 meg because it's a faster upload, it's a smaller file, and it's easier for me to deal with. And it's not as though the videos going to YouTube are going to go uh, anywhere else in particular. And if they are, obviously right. I have the timeline, I'll export them into something nicer. But Man, upload the bandwidth available for people is not (laughs) tailored to going up, it's tailored to going down. So, if you only like, I have a connection now, finally, where I have 15 megs up, but still. It takes a while if you're uploading a couple gig, whereas if you're uploading, like, 500 meg or 400 meg, uh, having a compressed file, you can't really tell the difference at 1080p anyway. 4K, uh, now you're getting something. And I'm interested to find out. If you do find anything out on whether or not you get a better image at 1080p when you upload 4K, that would be interesting to find out. Silence. Yeah.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, No, you totally caught me. Uh, The But yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think, though, um, what's happening with you is when you upload that smaller bitrate, uh, since it is YouTube format compatible, I don't think YouTube's re-encoding the stream because it already sees that it's streamable and it follows their guidelines uh, for how to do it. Um, that, but then, you know, everyone's always been, make the biggest file you can because we're going to recompress it. But I don't think that that's always true. And that's what I've been trying to look at with also uploading 4K to YouTube and what's the best way to do that. Um, even though at the end of the day, I think less than 0.1% of people on YouTube watch 4K, so it's still not something that's necessary. Uh, but it's interesting because I think it influences the bit rates at the other resolutions when you upload that file. So
0: now with 4K, uh, people, a lot of people that own 4K devices don't have anything to watch, you know. Yeah, so I I found that the 4K uh frame rate that's where I mean, the, the file size and frames. 4k footage in general <laughs> is popular in that group because they they buy a new monitor they buy a new tv or whatever and they're like wait a minute i want to watch 4k footage like wh- where do i get it and the only source to like easily get it is youtube i think you know there isn't really doesn't a lot netflix of streaming 4k some,
1: doesn't netflix have some uhd content
0: i thought they might they do but it's sort of like a hand band hand, bandwidth limited isn't it so you have to have like it is pretty high bandwidth have like, I think they require, if
1: I remember right, like thirty-five down. Yeah, like a minimum or something like which that. Which is a lot when you consider that all someone else needs to do is jump on YouTube real quick or watch some Facebook videos, and you don't have all that thirty-five that you need to watch Netflix in four K or whatever it is. I don't. I'm pretty sure they don't have a lot of content. I think it's just like a few things to prove that they could do it. But you know, once again, who has the bandwidth for four K until things go over to that uh, H.265? Um, uh, we're all going to be suffering with. So issues.
0: someone threw in the comments here, and uh, thanks for this uh, capturing media. Uh, he mentioned that uh, 4K is very prone to aliasing out of the Sony A7 II, or A7R Mark II. And he also mm-hmm. mentioned that the rolling shutter is mostly due to their crop factors. So two things to think about. Um, excellent input, man. I look forward to seeing more of the Sony A7 r mark ii and seeing how it turns out as far as video goes uh moving on down the line here the panasonic gh4 a camera i love a camera Devin is interested in loving uh (laughs) his price is starting to fall looks like um pretty solidly on ebay gray market gh4s are down to about 1200 bucks which is uh, they've
1: been there for like two weeks
0: now yeah It's it's
1: been at that level for a while
0: yeah, that's free shipping. I've got a link to it in the show notes. But, man, that's about $250 less than you see it on Amazon, than you see it on B&H and many other uh, Adorama and stuff like that. It That's a pretty good price. Uh, Devin, have you had any experience with gray market cameras? Because I've Absolutely. seen horrible uh, things about Nikon cameras that were made out of like cheaper plastic and weird stuff like that. But I've bought my gray market cameras in the past and never had any trouble.
1: I've never had any issues either. Uh the usual rules apply of try to go for a seller which has been around for a while, has experience and good reviews and everything else. Um because uh especially um where is this one shipping out of Canada it looks like. Like when you go to get something that shipped out of China, uh that's when things are more sketchy like uh my um 27-inch IPS monitor is one of those Chinese ones. that's like a rejection from the Apple factory, the LG factory, what have you. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's always mixed because sometimes you end up with dead pixels. They won't respond. And that's why reviews are so important, but pretty much everything i bought off of Amazon where the seller had good standing and it was Canada or stateside or something like that has all worked out amazingly. I've never had an issue. Uh, Compared to things like Kickstarter, where everything is an <laughs> issue and is
0: delayed, it doesn't show up on time. So, yeah, my uh, my gray market experience has been mostly good. The only issue I've run into is shipping. Um, mm-hmm. If you get it from a, a Chinese seller, uh, just make sure that you know what their shipping policy is, because a lot of times they require you to sign for an item, and if you're not at oh, yeah. your house to sign for it, then you may never get your item, and some it becomes
1: difficult.
0: Yikes. Really difficult to get a hold of that item because it's not like DHL has like shipping facilities
1: like UPS does. No, they like subways,
0: yeah. So yeah. you're always <laughs> trying to like get your stuff, and it can go into this perpetual like. Uh, if you don't pick it up in two more days, it's going to get sent back, and then you lose your item. So you have to make sure that you have someone there to sign for it. For me, uh, you know, a lot of times I'll just schedule it around my wife or myself schedule if I have time off work or whatever. But uh, that can be a real headache if you live and work a sporadic schedule and you can't meet the DHL guy. Uh, the other thing is uh, a lot of times the lower price you go, the less padding they put on stuff. And there has been reports the 4K IPS panel that I'm using right now has come in with uh, dents and stuff like that from other sellers that were like $25 cheaper because they don't put enough padding around it. And that could be kind of shifty, uh, really upsetting if you have like a broken screen or something like that and you have to pay $250 to have it returned to Korea. So uh, just something to think about. One of our audience
1: members says that uh, he tried buying a Gray Market's Canon lens, and instead they shipped him a Canon coffee mug. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> said, said the, the issue was corrected, but <laughs> how do you screw that up?
0: <laughs> well, the, uh, yeah, they had those Canon lens uh, coffee mugs for a while that looked like the Canon lens. And the Nikon ones, too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I guess that's sort of a thing. Um, anyway, the GH4 price drop, I think it's going to stay solid. It looks like it's holding in there. I-
1: be at this price probably for the next month month and a half or so and then it might go down another 50 bucks or something like that but i think that if you if you've been on the fence about buying one now would probably be the time because it's really not going to get any better and probably next year they'll announce a gh5 considering that they skipped this year so it's probably so that they could get things ready for a gh5 next year
0: now at that price what do you think about the gx8 comparatively because i mean the gx8 is most of the features of a GH4, but it's the same mm-hmm. price. You know, it's 1200 bucks out of the gate. It might be $1,100 depending on where you buy it from, but it seems like you'd almost be better off unless you like the style of the GX8 to go with the GH4 just because you get a few more features and a few extra bits compared to the GX8. Because the GX8, only the only thing it offers different from the GH4 is... uh that uh, dual image stabilization system where it's using the like the pixel shift on the sensor and then those upgraded firmware lenses in order to like sort of accomplish image stabilization you think it's worth it to go to the gx8 uh
1: not unless you really need to have a camera that has that black on the bottom silver on top look that uh, is sexy that all the retro guys love um because it it is i feel like the only difference is really going to be the form factor um, and like you said, the image stabilization, but I don't know. Most most of the time, that kind of stuff, um, if you've got the Panasonic lenses, the 2.8 series and stuff like that with the image stabilizer on those guys, those do an excellent job, in my opinion, of uh, keeping footage sharp. So I, I wouldn't. I would definitely go with the GH4 better just because uh, the cameras, like the weatherproofing and everything else, or like mild weatherproofing, what do they call it? Yeah, Weather mine's resist- taken
0: a splash from seawater multiple times and still – Up and running, so it's pretty good. I would like to comment on the image stabilization, though, in the lenses on Panasonic lenses. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, the stabilization, I I kind of end up getting a little bit soft 4K images when I use the stabilization in the lens. Yeah, it the whatever they're doing, you know, the vibration or or what have you, sort of gives you this like slight blur that's noticeable when you turn it on and turn it back off again and i don't really care for it at 1080p you don't notice it but at 4k it definitely adds a little bit of weirdness to your image so something i found maybe that's just me noticing that's interesting yeah no 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 no,
1: no. that could be very well legitimate considering how a lot of that kind of like spinning motors and stuff like that works uh that that very well could be because after all these lenses were built and tested for like the GH3 and GH2 is when these things came out. So uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, yeah, at the higher resolution, things don't quite line up right with it. I've only had experience with them at 1080p, so I can't comment on that.
0: Now, moving on down the line, we've got a few DIY items to sort of talk about. And this one's kind of interesting. Devin and I are both into (laughs) controllers and things like that. And I've been starting to see a slew of these ring lights Uh, available you know people are are doing little diy projects they're building them for like 15 or 20 bucks and i kind of wanted to break down what you need to make something like this and then sort of talk about the pitfalls and the things that you have to consider when you're making your own led light system first and foremost you can go on amazon and i've got links in the show notes and get uh just led strips And they're breakable. You can break them into little pieces. Uh, There's solder tabs on them. They're really easy to to work with. And you can get those for like it's $7 for 16 feet worth of LED strip lighting. Then you can get a 12-volt power supply for between 7 and $22, depending on how many amps you need to supply your source. So that's a really cheap bundle. And then, you know, ring lights are the thing, but Devin... He, <laughs> caught on to me right away is like well, why ring lights you know well you don't have to go with ring lights that's the thing so imagine if you do a valentines day shoot and you use uh, a heart shaped light or you use like a square mm-hmm. light or something else to get a little bit more creative with that devin i i threw the pwm controller in there just to throw you a bone man yeah. what, what do you think about other ways to modify led lights uh, like that
1: this is everything you've lined up here is absolutely terrible uh, <laughs> to start off with <laughs> The LED lights you picked um, are awful. Well, these are cheap, and I've I've messed around with these kind, and I've done them before. Any kind of light that doesn't at all mention CRI or, a, yeah, color rendering index CRI, um, even if they mention it and it's kind of a low number or something like that, it at least means you'll get a pure white. These guys have quite a bit of magenta to them most of the time, or they're um, they're super blue. It's like kind of one or the other of those two. Depends kind of where you're getting them from. So, usually the ones that mention CRI, well, they'll be like 90 CRI or something like that, they're usually about 50% more in price. But if you're going to use them in a video application, totally worth it. Secondly, your dimmer, uh, the PWM pulse width modulation, it's going to cause strobing, right? Dim them. Yep. Yeah. Huge strobing issues. It's funny because, uh, what was the, those like 9-inch by 9-inch light panels? I used to have two of them. Now I've only got one. Um, I forget who they're made by. Uh, but they use Sony batteries on the back of them, uh, two of them. And I liked them because I could charge them while I was using them. But those guys use a PWD. Uh, so whenever I'm not running at full brightness, uh, sometimes there'll be a flicker depending on what frame rate I'm at and if I'm messing around with stuff. Which is really disappointing. The newer versions of them that have the higher CRI index and everything else, they're much better. But uh, pulse width modulation, the flickering is definitely going to show up. It's really not going to work for photography because you'll get inconsistent results. Uh, and you may even get like half of the stuff lit up because of the way the rolling shutter works. Uh, but... Um, you know, it's funny because I've used a lot of this stuff for like under cabinet lighting and accent lighting and things like that, not necessarily in video production sense, but there, this you can make this yourself and it is relatively cheap. You just have to not buy the cheapest stuff. And if you're going to put a dimmer on it, which is always good because that's one of the advantages of LEDs over uh, CFLs is that you can put a dimmer on it. Uh, you're you're going to want to go with one that's actually going to turn 12 volts down from 12 to five or something like that to dim your lights as opposed to pulse with modulation, which a lot of the battery operated led lights use that because it's very efficient at dimming a light while maintaining battery life. Uh, but in the case of video, it's pretty temperamental in terms of t- depending on where you put your shutter. So that's why I recommend if you're building it yourself, there's a few good tutorials on YouTube too. If you search around, there's some great tutorials on people who have done this for video and they usually have kind of a parts list and they'll recommend certain dimmers and things like that. But I'm all about it because these things are cheap. And if you get some good LEDs, they work great. And you you just be amazed at how many places you can fit them. It's like, you know, you don't even have to spend 50 bucks on a small LED light panel. You can just take kind of like a block of wood and build it yourself, Um, which, you know, as long as you're not necessarily concerned about what the client thinks about your gear works great. You know, if you're building your own studio in your basement or something like that, building your own lights is definitely a way to go because soldering is not that
0: difficult. No, it's not. And, uh, you know, I I know not to use PWM, but uh, I threw these all in here because <laughs> these look like very easy common mistakes. Devin, you passed with flying colors. Uh, for those of you not familiar with uh, LED panels in general, you can vary the voltage to the LED lights and that's how you can dim them. The reason they don't use that is because you're basically using a resistive load and still wasting the same amount of electricity in order to power the lights themselves. Whereas with pulse width modulation, it's sending a square wave pulse of electricity into the LED. Uh, over the course of a duty cycle so you're only supplying it for you know three quarters of a second or a quarter of a second or whatever the duty cycle time is for the uh, PWM setting so it does save power but because of that it's basically strobing your LEDs on and off and the strobing is what video will pick up on. Now for photography you know you get your uh, shutter speed set correctly and you can probably avoid this you know it it won't be that big Mm -hmm. of an issue depending on uh, how, how far down you have it dimmed, but for video, it's going to be an issue. So awesome, well, and, and man. The thing is too, I feel like this would pulse with modulation
1: is a legitimate way to take care of it. And I don't understand why when they make video lights, uh, that use LEDs and they're on the cheaper brand, they aren't like, you know, some kind of big Kino flow brand or something like that. Why they aren't using, uh, just a higher frequency of pulse with modulation. Cause I'm not an electrical engineer, but I go, hey, if instead of doing, you know, 60 hertz as your pulse with modulation or something like that, you did something like, um, you know, 500 hertz. I feel like it wouldn't really be detected in a rolling shutter. I could be
0: wrong. The class but I feel LEDs like that, would be quick enough. that they're using don't gate fast enough for that to happen. Ah, okay. So the issue is is that um, if you look at the, like the cheap LEDs, which is what they're using in these, of course, mm-hmm. uh, it takes a certain number of milliseconds for you to bias the gate and to turn on the LED itself. So if you go up to a higher frequency, you'll never actually have a long enough duty cycle to gate the LED on. So, you need to go to a mm-hmm. lower frequency. And incidentally, the lower frequency that you would choose is the one that's going to give you problems for uh, strobing in video. So, there is the right. secret right there is gate 22. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That totally makes sense. So, you posted here um, a cool sticker for GH4 owners. What's that about? Okay. So, and I'll actually share this, the screen, so you guys can see this. And wow, good transition there, Devin. Like, I'm calling you out. So then I ruined the transition. But, uh, Uh, This is kind of interesting. Actually, Dev and I were talking about this before the show. Uh, It's a sticker for your GH4. They're about $10 if you live in the United States and they're, Uh, $8 if you live in Europe. Uh, This guy basically gives you just a nice list of things that you want to know about on a GH4. Uh, So focal length equivalents, if you're using say a speed booster, uh, different stop measurements uh, as far as ND filters go, a bunch of frame rates and video rate information. Uh, Something you could really do yourself, but it's kind of cool that someone's organized this and put it into a nice little sticker for you. And 10 bucks, you know, this is handy information to have and questions that often come up technically, where you're like, "Well, oh, wait a minute. What was I supposed to shoot at with this or, you know, how many stops is this ND filter taking me down from where I'm at uh having this list. Right, seems pretty handy. Devin, what do you think? Would you stick one of these to the back of your camera?"
1: Absolutely. I mean, I may uh, I may end up printing one myself uh just to customize it for me and just give the information that I need. Uh but the my favorite part of it uh is is the concept. Is that yeah, there is this big blank area on your gh4 gh3 that you're not using and so why not fill that with a cheat sheet of little things because i've done that before i've made excel spreadsheets being like okay if i've got the speed booster these are the lenses i got so what's their you know focal length so i know when i'm swapping on and off a a booster uh what that means um and so I just, I, it was just one of those that I saw it and I was like, damn, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> you no, know? because it's just, it's, it makes so much sense. You got this blank area that they could have information on and it's just not being used, you know, most of the time when you flip open the, the viewfinder. So
0: now one thing I got to complain about real quick on the GH4, and this is sort of an issue I've run into uh, regularly actually. And I don't know if it's just mine or if it's everybody's, but when I close the screen, up against the back of the body, for some reason, about three-quarters of the time, the focus point shifts from where I have it set to, like, the far corner. And I wonder if it's the nubs on the back of this. And I wonder if this sticker would uh, do the same thing because it changes the capacitance Mm. up against the screen when you shut your you know, your screen up against it, would that do, you know, cause the same effect? I don't know, but it's just something I was kind of wondering what the material they are using on the sticker, so uh, I don't know if that's an actual known issue. I haven't seen anything that says that's the case, but something weird, that happens with my GH4, and do you have the same problem with your GH3? No, I've never once had that problem. That's
1: why it's interesting, (laughs) but I don't feel like I've got uh, rubber on the inside of my GH3. I'm not sure if it's worn off or what, but when I looked at that picture and saw those little rubber knobs you're talking about, I go, do I even have that? Uh, Because I feel like I don't for some reason. I probably do. I don't know why I don't think I do.
0: Well, and it's kind of weird, but um, I have sort of dry skin, and because of that, I'm not very capacitive, so a lot of times (laughs) interacting with touchscreens is very painful for me. Uh, Even my smartphone right here is you know i have to hit things three or four times for it to to light up and detect my finger or sometimes i end up having to like you know lick my finger which is gross and then touch your touchscreen and you get smears all over it so it's sort of <laughs> like uh, i don't know if that's just me maybe other people can report back on their touchscreen issues but that is an interesting sticker very cool uh, idea really? and uh, well thought of the other diy project i've gotten a list here is this guy right here and this is basically a sort of adjustable camera mount. Uh looks like from this project, they've basically taken a piece of thick copper and stuck it into a heated tube that they've shrunk down to fit it, and then used PEX fittings on either end to sort of solder on quarter 20 adapters on either side. The uh, whole project is $8, and it's enough to support, oh, look at that, wouldn't you guess, a PowerShot Canon. <laughs> there you go, man. Yep. So, because it's popular, everyone's got one, I guess, except me. This is a fairly in depth DIY project. Looks like it'll probably take you a couple hours and a torch and a few other things to accomplish, but it is kind of cool. So, there's a link to that in the show notes. Now, onto the meat and potatoes, Devin, unless you have anything to add to that. Uh, no, I don't have anything to add <laughs> I other like than, um, I, you know, what it's it's really
1: cool. And I see the possibility with stretching it out and using it to like create some distance. Uh, But I wouldn't use this uh, to replace necessarily like one of those Gorilla Pods because those would be a lot easier to work with than bending copper all the time. But I can see places where this would be terribly useful to have.
0: Yeah, you bend uh, copper enough times and it's probably going to give up on you. So just don't put anything super expensive on there if you're doing that. Um, (laughs) This last one is kind of interesting, and I I saved this for uh, the discussion topic. But it's a DVX 200 pricing. Uh, And Devin added this to the show notes, and then I mentioned the JVC-GY LS300, which is priced at $3,500. Now, the DVX-200 is priced at $4,200, and that's a fixed lens, which we were just complaining about fixed lens earlier, I believe. Uh, Now, you have the JVC-GY LS300, which is $700 less, shoots 4K, and does not have a fixed lens, and it uses... um, Uh, basically super 35 millimeter sensor as opposed to a micro four third sensor what do you think man would you go with the dvx 200 what's the advantages
1: uh i'll tell you the advantages Uh, for one thing a fixed lens i know that sounds crazy that i listed as an advantage but uh, the fact that you have uh, a pretty decent lens on the front of it means one the autofocus is going to work And it's going to be imagining that this is a Panasonic product and everything else and they're just coming out with it now. It's probably going to be fast and it's probably going to work the first time as well. um, All of the metering, autofocus, image stabilization and all that kind of stuff, that all works. As opposed to the JVC, it kind of depends on what lens you throw on it and then how good is that lens going to be where... You're right. You do get the advantage of being able to put on boosters and do different lenses and stuff like that. But that's it's one of those where you're adding complexity to what you're shooting uh, in terms of if you're, you know, for some reason, you're a part of a production team where you're using interns to shoot B-roll or something like that. This is something that you can handle anybody, uh, you know, and they'll be able to just turn it on. You can set full auto and then just have them record it. So whether it's a, a news reporter recording themselves or even um you know, just, uh, you know, your first camera per se for learning how cameras work and everything else. It's one of those that it has SDI out, uh, you know, it's got the HDMI 2.0 or whatever for doing 4k over HDMI working all, all those features that this camera is just built to go wherever and always work and probably look the same. Like it, it's, it's probably got a certain look to it. I mean, they've got Vlog that they advertise to about having the full 12 stops. Plus you also have D uh, DCI 4k, Which seems funny that the JVC one that actually has swappable lenses where you could put on cinema lenses doesn't have, uh, you know, the slightly higher resolution 4K, uh, you know, considering the filmmaking format of it. Uh, But still, um, 4K up to 60 frames, um, as well as then having the lens beyond there means that you can put this thing in full auto and I can hand it to anybody and they're going to get a shot that I can use later in editing. So to me, that's that's something of a value, uh, and especially for schools and stuff like that. You know, schools love buying these kind of things because uh, it's less stuff for somebody to break and for someone to screw up. So, I, I, you know, it's the once again we get back to the conversation: the right camera for the right job. I feel like I'm you're uh, throwing all my
0: previous examples right back in my face <laughs> and saying like, "Hey, man, what about this?" Uh, one thing looking at this though, it is a little disappointing. Is the uh, lens itself? F two eight to F four five. So you don't have a fixed uh, aperture all the way across the zoom range, yeah. which is a little disappointing. Uh but you got a huge zoom range. Yeah, the zoom range is uh looks like in four K mode it's uh twenty-eight to three hundred and sixty five millimeter equivalent for full frame. So that is fairly that's a attractive. Long throw.
1: That and, and that's that's you know what you need for doing documentary work or ENG or something like that is having a uh you know, a, a zoom that you can do a long throw on and just judging from Uh, Not that I've read the manual, but judging from the pictures, it looks like this is going to actually have a manual zoom ring, so you could turn off the servo and slam the zoom when you need to if you're running around trying to get shots real quick.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to look at the picture to see what the mechanism looks like on there. Uh, Doesn't – I can't tell just from the picture. does the JVC have a built-in ND filter? I don't think it does. I thought it did, actually. Now now you got me looking. Um, I want to (laughs) say it had, like – three stops at ND filtering, but I could be incorrect. Um, yeah, tune into the
1: podcast and watch Devin and DJ look at com oh, for an hour.
0: Yeah, no joke. Uh, <laughs> no. Yeah. It doesn't look like it has an ND filter built in, or I'm not seeing it in the specs anyway. So, uh, someone can correct me if i'm wrong which i probably am oh nope it does okay built-in nd filter yep. as a quarter 16th and uh one sixty fourth. so yeah three stops so it does uh built-in nd filter that's that's what i thought yeah so i mean yeah. i don't know they keep bringing the price down on this i think wasn't it listed originally at like 4800 and uh now it's all the way down to oh 3500 yeah, 3500 uh when they first announced this camera it was announced pretty high and then immediately after it was announced some other stuff was announced and the price dropped to uh, 4000 and now it's on B&H right now and uh David wasn't joking we were both literally <laughs> scrolling through the B&H <laughs> specs right here uh, it's yeah, uh, Oh, let's look at those specs. Yeah, it's 30 uh 3500
1: for that price, you get a free lens cleaning cloth.
0: Of course, you because that. that is the thing I was just jonesing for. Man, if only they'd include one of those little poofers and a lens cleaning cloth, I would just be. Mad I would have happy. just bought it up right now. Yeah.
1: No, but um, also, I don't think that it does the higher frame rate. I mean, you are getting 4K at 60, which is something too. So.
0: Oh, yeah, you're right. It, it isn't, it isn't a, a capable of doing, I think, 120 and frames. And
1: 120. It'll do 120 in HD as well, so so you're still getting those a little bit are... of, yeah, yeah. So, like I said, this seems like a very versatile camera. Even though you can't swap lenses on it, uh, it's one of those that seems it would fit in great with uh, low end news coverage, documentary purposes, or you know the self reporter. If you know for some reason some reporter needs to buy their own equipment or the studio wants to hand a reporter a piece of equipment to go out and get something.
0: Now, the other thing I'm not clear on on this uh, JVC LS300, and we've talked about it before, but uh, it uses a super 35 millimeter sized uh, 13.5 megapixel sensor. But mm-hmm. I think you have to you have to unscrew like a ring in order to adapt to uh, other sizes of lenses. So it looks to me like... Uh, it's native M4 III, but that you can adapt it to other lens sizes. Uh, do, do you do you agree? I mean, I'm not really sure, like, what's going on with that whole Super 35. It's a, it advertises an M4 III, uh system, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, it's, it's one of those. I'd probably have to see it in person uh, because, yeah, Super 35, I don't know of a bunch of if every micro four-third lens I throw on it would fill that up uh, because they're usually made for, like, I'm thinking of, like, the Rokinon, like, some of the smaller, cheaper lenses and stuff like that. I'm not sure if they fill out that full-size sensor. Um, But that is something is that you are getting a bigger sensor, which could mean better uh, ISO or gain performance in this case since it's a video camera, um, compared to the four-third sensor uh, that they talk about with the Panasonic. Even yeah. though they advertise 12-stops as dynamic range, it is a very small – it's, you know, 60-millimeter. It's, it's a
0: small sensor. Are there? Have you seen any test footage from the JVC yet? Because, I mean, I've, we've talked about it a bunch, but I don't think I've seen anything actually recorded with it. I don't think anyone's bought one. <laughs> Burn. Devin goes deep, cuts deep there. Yeah, JVC, uh, we've said in the past, it's not exactly a brand. You go out of your way, they're like, oh, man, JVC has a new product. I'm on the edge of my seat. What is it? What, what does JVC have now? You know, it's it's sort of like, what, JVC still makes stuff? Yeah, um, I'm looking on YouTube right now, and I have seen this one. There's one called The Heist, and I'll add this to the uh, show notes so you guys can check out this footage. Uh, there, The Heist video that's available on YouTube looks fairly amateurish, um, and it's not super compelling. It basically well, looks like what you'd expect.
1: There's better videos on Vimeo, but Vimeo's not 4K. Yeah. <laughs> as much as everyone loves Vimeo, I realize I'm in the minority because I'm not a huge fan of uh, Vimeo's quality, but everyone touts that they're the best quality out there. Vimeo still hasn't done a 4K system, so trying to like get camera tests with these uh, 4K cameras makes it a bit difficult.
0: Yeah, so... I've got a link to the JVC video in the show notes. Devin, have you seen any footage from this uh Panasonic DVX200? No, not at all. Not I at all. I don't think that there's
1: anything out yet. No. Did did they even send out review units of it? I don't like, think I so. I imagine they would.
0: Um I haven't heard anything about them going out yet, but uh uh it's, no, it's also actually- kind of a camera that not a lot of people are extremely excited about, you know, cuz this is more yeah, of like a workhorse camera than it is like something that you're like, "Oh, sweet." Uh, fixed, fixed zoom lens. Uh, what? Yeah, that. Give me seven. I need all of them. (laughs) I need all. (laughs) Yeah, but it's you know also too
1: like you said uh you know video departments inside of uh you know corporates and stuff like that will usually buy one or two of these to go around the office and do whatever they need to do with video work.
0: Yeah, and I do like, I do like the idea as you mentioned earlier of just having a camera that is sort of easy to set up has a big fat red record button and auto mode some stabilization like a zoom rocker and those sorts of things to make it really simple to use and you can just drop like a wireless pack on there or put a decent microphone on there and and kind of send people around and get crowd footage or whatever uh, i don't know i'm not i'm not super excited about this camera i'm not all over the top about the jvc either but it's sort mm-hmm. of leaning towards that thing I want to get to, which is basically a GH4 with some XLR inputs. It's in sort of a more, you know, form factor like, that I like. Like you were,
1: like you were hoping with the GH4 uh, Yagwig, whatever it's exactly. called. Exactly what what you're hoping that was going to be but then when it said things like all right it'll require external power and all this stuff well that made it all deal breakers and didn't really fulfill your desire of having a prosumer kind of interface and experience inside of a dslr size package
0: yeah uh, hopefully we'll we'll start seeing more of that i mean there's the the promises on the horizon canon's already got the c100 and 300 and 500 series coming out and that's sort of a hybrid version only the price is way out there. Uh panasonic's tried in the past with the what was it was it avg AF100. Yeah, the AF100 which was the uh basically a GH2 shoved into a weird square uh you know video camera sort of thing. Uh we'll probably see something like that from Panasonic again in the future. The um uh, AF100 wasn't well received from what I remember and now you can buy them used on eBay for like 800 bucks. So not a really popular thing
1: the af100 was basically what the jvc is now you know minus the 4k and everything else because this camera's years old but i remember many many times on many message boards everyone touting how the af100 is going to be the best thing ever and it's going to kill people using 5ds and everything else and i agreed that it was a step in the right direction but then i think people just weren't impressed with what they were getting out of it as well as uh The price is probably more than people were willing to expect because they're all expecting, you know, the DSLR prices. And it's like, no, this has got more in it than a DSLR does. So you have to expect that it's going to cost more.
0: Now, one last thing I want to talk about before we end the show. And you and I sort of dug into this pretty deep uh, a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the decline in DSLR sales. Uh, Price, I think, is still a thing that's keeping DSLRs in the forefront because Imagine mm-hmm. the AF 100. That that's a great example. Like that was priced at what four or five thousand dollars, and yeah. the the GH two was priced at what like twelve hundred bucks. And again, we're sitting yeah. in the same zone right now. Like right in front of me, here is the Sony A 7s Love this camera. Shoots great in low light. Um, well, I don't. I'm not in love with it, but uh, I I do use it quite a bit. Enjoy it. And this is a seventeen hundred dollar body. Uh, is there equivalent? that's in that price range for a full-fledged video camera no there isn't uh, we don't have anything like that when are we going to start seeing mm-hmm. that sort of thing to drag us back into the like the actual video camera market again you know Devin, you're in the same boat man you have a, yeah. a bunch of dslr style cameras that you shoot mm-hmm. on like what would it take yeah. to drag you back over the line to a regular video camera again
1: uh something that's probably under three grand, to be honest. Um, anything past that, I feel like it's, it it depends on what market you're in and what you're shooting for and how big your clients are. But, um, most of the time in terms of owning a camera, I'm still at that price point where I have a hard time spending more than that on a camera. Uh, if I need something more than that for a client, I rent, it's just, it's booked out of the client that they'll pay for, you know, whatever we're going to go shoot with, whether it's a C300 or what have you. So, um, so that's kind of for me where that price break is and none of this prosumer stuff has reached underneath really that at all, unless it's older. Cause like, yeah, you can get an AF 100 right now for a two grand brand new. I don't know why you would. Cause I'm sure the eBay prices are yeah. pretty, pretty, pretty far down from that. But, uh, for me, uh, that's really all I need. And then, yeah, I would probably need just a super 35 size sensor. Like the GH4 has would be fine with me some 4K. I don't even need high speed. I just need XLR inputs. It's got some nice preamps on it. And I would probably kind of like the JVC. I'd probably want interchangeable lenses uh, just because there's so many different situations where creatively, and now I've gotten in this mood of using different lenses. It's a little different if you're shooting documentary all the time and stuff like that. But I'm with a lot of stuff. I'm doing both clients who want interviews that look more cinematic and as well as shooting commercials and other things like that and kind of storytelling, having the ability to make a lens choice uh, can go a long way in the way things look and work. So it would probably be something like an AF-100 that does 4K, but I don't think that anything like that's going to come out that's going to be under three grand. Um,
0: I thought they were announcing a successor to that in um, uh, NAB this year. You know, I'm I remember not... talk of that, but I think it was all mostly rumors. I don't think we actually got... Everyone Anything. just really wanted it. Even though no one really bought the camera or ever used it,
1: <laughs> everyone's like, no, this is still the answer. We still need to get one of these. Just give us one in 4K.
0: Man, I'm looking on so. eBay right now, and it is, it's is—it's pretty sad. Here is the pricing for the AF100, the Savior. Uh, <laughs> looks like about <laughs> $1,000 or so. Or you can get it with like a, a whole bunch of extra kit for about 1200 bucks. So very yeah, affordable. Everyone's dumping them. Yeah super cheap right now the uh c100 is down too i believe um i think you can pick up a c100 now uh, under three grand which is i don't like the c100 at all also with with these prosumer cameras there's a few other things that you get
1: that i don't think would ever come to the dslr market and like one of them has to do with the way that uh it's reading the sensor so uh, without using Uh, The DVX-200, I can almost guarantee you that its uh, ISO slash gain control uh, probably ramps between what you want it to be, which sounds like such a small thing. But if I have to hold a continuous shot between indoor and outdoor, um, you know, I can ramp the gain up and down uh, in decibels rather than changing shutter speed, which is not something you can do smoothly. And be able to maintain proper exposure throughout the entire experience of going through different lighting, where every DSLR that I've ever touched, when you change the ISO, it just jerks. And most of them will let you do it in the middle of a shot now, but it's one of those where I go, okay, I'll have to edit around this because this is distracting from what I'm trying to record. So it, 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 I know these are like little things, but these are all the little things that I kind of remember and I enjoyed. Uh, using these kind of cameras. Uh, but of course, now I'm all addicted to having interchangeable lenses and dealing with that mess when I travel from place to place.
0: Now, can't you, uh, you know, on the GH4, I've, I haven't had to do extremes going outside to inside, but I've moved from slightly different lighting situations before. Uh, can't you just use the, uh, I think it's, is it the P mode or Auto. the A mode? Yeah. Because one of them is yeah. uh, uh aperture priority. The other one is um is your ISO priority and then the third one is your shutter priority. And if you set it up for um ISO priority, it will move the ISO around in steps of I mean it's it not as it's not as smooth as you would get out of the gain, which I completely understand because mm-hmm. the gain has much more Finely tuned steps, whereas with the ISO, mm-hmm. you're you're jumping from like 200 to 400 to 600, you know, or whatever, or 200, right? Cause it's just doing it stops. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's the way it's
1: built, like a photography camera. Yeah. So it's um, a little more jerky, yeah, but I, you. have done that. I've done that. It's one of those where, like, I want it to be attached to a wheel, though. And it's one of those, I don't necessarily want to be attached to a wheel that clicks. I want it to be attached to a wheel that rolls and that I can kind of play with and grab it and push it where I need to, like you would with a focus wheel. And that's a, that's a small use case. It's not like I I would do that on every shoot. I'm just saying like, these are kind of the little things that if you use these cameras in the past, some people may recall being like, yeah, I, I did it for this shot and it helped me with this. Or, you know, I did this with this camera. That would really kind of be something that you would just try to avoid and work around with a current DSLR workflow. So uh, I agree with you though, like, you know, an AF100 that does 4K and all this magical stuff, that's what I would be searching for. But chances are, if and when it comes, it'll probably be five grand like most of the other stuff.
0: Yeah, I think uh they're trying to hold on to their sort of pro slash prosumer definition. They want to make sure that, you know, yeah. people don't start creeping over because it's already been an issue where a lot of um even medium budget films were shooting on five D Mark threes for quite some time and it was considered oh, yeah. acceptable. Uh you know, the the other problem I have myself, and I'm looking around my room here, is I have a couple of five D Mark Threes. I have a six D. I have an entire uh, lineup of uh, Micro Four Thirds lenses and a GH Four. I'm I'm completely kitted out. It would really have to be very compelling for me to just jump ship, get rid of a bunch of gear, and move over, you know, back across the line to a video camera. And, uh, you know, I would want lens compatibility. I would want all the controls, yeah. good, you know, audio interface. I would probably even hope for four tracks of audio recording just because, you know, now I've been using, you know, field recorders and stuff like that. It's it's sort of a thing that would sounds, be really nice. To sounds have. like an AF-100. It sounds like you're talking about an AF-100 uh,
1: just with some 4K capabilities because, after all, if it's made by Panasonic, it's going to be a micro four-thirds mount, so that means you'd have still your compatibility with your speed boosters and everything else and all your Panasonic lenses. So it sounds like that's what it would take to make you jump. Is an AF200 or something like that.
0: Yeah, and 4K is sort of like at first I was kind of like, eh, whatever, you know, I'll shoot some 4K sometimes. Now, anytime I pick up the GH4, it's 100% 4K. Uh, all the time, yeah. no matter what, it's not that big of a, a data burden. I just shoot 4K, use 128 gig transcend cards, no problems there, works just fine. And, you know, you have all the cropping and everything else you can do in post if you're lazy. It does make me a lazy shooter, I will tell you that right now. Like, <laughs> I've gotten lazy with my framing, but it's really handy and now the next camera i buy will 4k is a requirement like it's not because i have to produce and output in 4k it's just because the conveniences of working in 4k have made me realize that why give that up i mean everybody seems to be adding it to every camera you know moving forward i think mm-hmm. that everything should have 4k in it as well uh okay we got one last question and then we're gonna wrap up the show Devin, you want to <laughs> take a look at this one here in the corner
1: I don't see a question. Uh-oh, I see a question. It was there, but I don't, so you'll have to read it to me. Cause uh, I, Oh, wait, there there it goes. Canon uh, is close with the XC10, but it's really bad in real-life experiences uh, like it, but no one relies on the touchscreen, but once you put on the loop... The this isn't really a question as point. much
0: as it is a statement. No.
1: <laughs> okay. So, But he, he's saying he really likes the, the XC, uh, XC10.
0: Yeah. And so have you
1: had any experience using that?
0: I've played around with it in stores, have not taken it out on a shoot, not super excited about the XC10 in general. Uh, it's sort of a weird camera. Um, the shape is okay, sort of, feels a little bit like the C100, but it's, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really... With that separated grip? Yeah, with that sort of like rotating twist grip and stuff, but i don't know it's it to me it's not that great the zoom range that's available is sort of the same thing that i was complaining about with uh that uh Mm -hmm. dvx 200 you know because you stop down uh, from like uh, f2.8 to 5.6 in the zoom range which is sort of obnoxious uh it does have a better 4k codec i think it's like a 305 megabit per second codec that they're using or a 50 megabit in hd which a little odd. But uh, even then, you know, I don't know. It's it's a funky, a funky, funky camera. camera. And there's no XLRs for you. That's what you want. You want some XLRs, you exactly. want some Canon power. If I'm going to have to use, uh, <laughs> you know, a headphone jack to bring my audio in anyway, I might as well just go right back to my DSLR and, and be done with it. Plus, what's the deal with that stupid clip-on viewfinder piece? I mean, that, I don't know. It, it just seems dumb. I know. I, because then it's just it's there's
1: a, like once again this is one of those little things there's a reason why uh, things like the DVX 200 has both an eyepiece and a flip out screen and that's because in this case you've got this loop on the back that you have to take off and add to it take off and add to it uh, when you want to switch between the two modes whether you're holding it in an awkward angle to get a shot and you want to see what the shot looks like or you're working outdoors and you need to get your eyepiece in it or you're just using the eyepiece to kind of like maintain uh your um you you know three points of contact to stabilize the camera so it's one of those where once again this is kind of this weird thing halfway in between because technically you've got both an eye an eye cup and a screen but it's not as it's not as convenient as most of the other cameras out there i mean even then like the form factor of a dslr holding it up to your eye while you're shooting video is kind of a weird form factor too because you still get that kind of like I don't know how to yaw motion that you don't get off of longer cameras where, you know, when you're holding it, it'll kind of wiggle left and right. It's one of those little things that I notice where I go, oh, I could tell this is a handheld DSLR because its handheld look is definitely distinct compared to something like a larger camera.
0: Yeah, and that is one thing. I know a lot of people complain about the form factor of a DSLR, but... You know my. I was holding this up earlier. I have a handle for this on the side. It's really handy. Those two together make this a really good, easy thing Your to handle. Is onto. handy. Yeah, yeah. The handle is handy. Um, <laughs> it's handy. Yeah. Uh, okay. That's funny enough. <laughs> just, uh, I had to give that
1: to you, man. This is... <laughs> I've got a handle and it's handy. It's just, it's good. It's a good line. We should
0: quote the podcast on that whole thing. Yeah, no joke. (laughs) Um, uh, Put handles on your camera. They're handy. Yeah, exactly. Handy handles. Put them everywhere. (laughs) Uh, Now, in all seriousness, though, the the form factor of a DSLR, like even though it's not necessarily ideal for video shooting uh, in general, like it's not bad and it's comfortable enough. And I've kind of gotten so used to it now that when I switch over to an actual real camera, I sort of feel less comfortable than I used to in the past. So I don't know if that's something you've run into, Devin, Uh, working between the two. You know, it's like now I've kind of gotten used to like, oh, wait, especially with the A7S and the GH4 where I can kind of do this with a screen and face it up. Mm -hmm. I kind of find myself shooting at the chest more than I used to um i in mm-hmm. fact for a while i was building the I, I think they're called bulldog rigs but it's a rig that's designed to hold at your chest and then you put your monitor on the top so you can look down at the camera as opposed to you know having it at eye level and that sort of uh feel and method of shooting to me it's it's kind of grown on me to where i like having that sort of chest level perspective as opposed to eye level perspective for filming uh it does better with uh wrinkles and people's faces and stuff like that. Uh, the lighting is easier to kind of keep under control and stuff from that angle. I don't know if I'm just imagining this or if this is like actual Maybe, maybe you fact. are imagining it.
1: Uh, when when I shoot people, I tend to be at eye level most of the time because uh, that's, that's the look that I like and what I go with. It all depends on the project and what look you're going for. But most of the time with uh, documentary coverage and stuff like that and uh, shooting for news networks, eye level is kind of maybe a little bit above eye level, but right around that point is usually where you want the camera. Uh, but then once again, if you're off doing your own thing and you're making your own YouTube video and you have your own look and your own style, then go for what works with you. But most of the time, these are creative features.
0: If I have something (laughs) spec, obviously I can't work that way, but, uh, You know, especially like shooting action and stuff like, I don't know, to me, it feels way more comfortable. And I like the look of chest level. I'm also a taller guy. So chest level for me is eye level for anybody that's, you know, five, eight or below. So I mean, in in that (laughs) mode, you know, maybe it's just in my imagination and the chest thing is the right thing to go. Regardless, I don't like the uh, XC1 or XC10 at all. It's it's a weird camera. Um, the other thing, people, I haven't heard anybody talk about this, but uh, there's vents on the side, and it suffers from the same issue that the C100 suffers from, in that there's a fan that spins up to cool the sensor every once in a while. So also be aware of that. It's just like a weird, strange, other thing that's a problem with Canon's design. Uh, I don't know, man. In general, I don't think it's a, a great camera. Uh, it's it's weird. It's funky. It's just not my thing. And I don't think it's yours either from what I'm gathering, Devin. No.
1: No, definitely not.
0: All right. On that note, where can people find you, Devin? Because it's time to wrap up the show.
1: Uh, ImpulseNetworks.tv, as usual. Occasionally, I guess Twitter. I got to get on Twitter and figure that out. Yeah.
0: Because
1: uh, <laughs> will... that's what you keep telling me. You're like, jump on Twitter, man. We're having a party over here. (laughs) So,
0: all right. On that note, guys, you can find this podcast. Anywhere podcasts are delivered on iTunes or on SoundCloud. SoundCloud added purge, and we didn't lose anything, so obviously I'm not violating any copyrights. That's great. Um, Also, (laughs) swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com for more updates with the show and so on. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter at DSLRFilmNoob, or you can find me on YouTube under One Lone Dork. Also, guys, thanks for listening. Make sure you hit the Like button. Tell Devin how much you like him by getting on Twitter and following him and, you know, doing whatever you do on Twitter to annoy the heck out of him so his phone just lights up like crazy. (laughs) On that note, guys, we'll see you next time on another exciting episode of DSR Film Noob Podcast.